You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is Will Mavity's interview with the co-screenwriter for Soul, Mike Jones. What would you want to be known for on Earth? We only have a short time on this planet. You want to become the person that you were born to be? Don't waste your time on all the junk of life. What am I doing? Spend your precious hours doing what will bring out the real you. The brilliant, passionate you that's ready to contribute something meaningful into this world. I got the gig. I really need a haircut today, man. Can you fit me in? Whoa, whoa, sorry. for doing this funny cowboy dance? <laughs> Great. Hey, Will. Hi, how are you? Good. Good. Perfect, Mike. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. I, I can hear you just fine. You have a pretty interesting background. You worked, I guess, in my world, and you still do, right? A little bit? You write for, I think, Screen Rant some? Uh, no, I was uh, I, I pretty much gave it all up when Pixar swallowed me. Um, and when the screen, I mean, when I was a screenwriter, um, you know, I was a screenwriter for other studios for about 20 years. I, I could occasionally, um, you know, do the additional piece here and there for IndieWire or Variety or, um, Filmmaker, but with Pixar is now just, it's my, my all day is Pixar. So, um, but I miss it, you know, like I started, I started right out of film school as a journalist. Um, or no, I was working kind of as a as the special projects manager for Filmmaker Magazine, and then um, I kind of worked my way up to be their managing editor, which I loved. And this was the mid '90s mm-hmm. in New York when really the independent film scene there was so vibrant and so fantastic. And it was coming out of NYU; it was kind of another level of film education for me. And um, I loved it. I loved going to film festivals. I loved watching um, foreign and art film, art film and uh, certainly like American independent film. I loved all of that. Yeah, I, I imagine covering it in those days when like Paul Thomas Anderson and Tarantino were first getting mm-hmm. discovered would be just insane. Uh, how did you make the big jump? Well, I always wrote, I, but I never, um, you know, to be honest, I went to film school at, at um, to NYU wanting to be a cinematographer and I shot a few short movies and I shot a doc at my professor's documentary and I, I did some work, but, um, I could write. And it was a writing professor that took me aside and said, you know, you, you should think about it. And, um, I think it was just the influence of the independent American independent film movement that got me thinking I could just do it, that I could just write something and um, I could go down and shoot it in my hometown. I, my first script was, was based, my first scripts were based on um, my upbringing in South Texas. And I always just thought, well, I'll just go do it, you know, because there was this um, energy 
and it it was really um, it was really feasible. He felt it wasn't, but it was really feasible. <laughs> and so um, I would say, like I, I would say, it was it was really that energy and being around all of those people. I mean, Scott McCauley, who is the editor at Filmmaker Ma- Filmmaker Magazine, is also a producer, produced Gummo and um, a bunch of Harmony Crunch stuff and a lot of fantastic like uh, independent films. And to see him do it and also be the editor in chief just got me. Um, excited and so I would go home on the weekends and uh, after work and also and just write and um, you know this is also before this is also kind of before just before the internet so I would have to also find a way of getting my scripts to people to read and that was always really hard and I would mail them to any sort of um, script competition I could Um, and I would like maybe place if lucky you know but uh, what I found really put me over the edge was, again, that idea that I could just go do it. And so what I did is I got a producer, a guy who really hadn't produced much, um, named Renee Bastian. And um, Renee went and got a casting director, not like a high-level casting director, but like a, a hungry casting director, and said, like, would you try to get this to these actors? And that casting director was able to get that script. It was called Miller at the time to Chris Cooper and to Marsha Gay Harden and to um, Scarlett Johansson. Mm. And we attached all of those actors to it. And suddenly the film became real. And when the, when the industry starts to see something real happening, then it seems to climb another level and you get a lot of it, you get some more attention. And it was Chris Cooper's management company at the time called AMG, which was Mike Ovitz's management company. Uh, it's folded, but yeah. the literary department called me and said, um, and said, would we, we loved your script. Would you be interested in representation? And like, I, and, and it was that that finally got me an agent or a manager rather. Um, and I had, it's not like I hadn't been trying for years before that, but I've been trying, I guess the way everybody else or most people try. And that is just cold calling, cold mailings, um, using calling the friend of a friend of a friend, calling the family friend of whatever, none of those really got me anywhere. It was actually trying to make the thing that got me um, the manager, that, and that really set my career off. God, that is that is very cool, and it's you know it's it's a path that I guess few have made the jump from writing about film to writing film. Uh, I think Rod mm-hmm. Lurie and Robert Cargill are the only mm-hmm. other ones I know of. Uh, do you guys, mm-hmm. are you guys former press turned screenwriters close? Do you guys ever discuss that world at all or know each other? No, I don't know many other, um, many other journalists who have um, kind of transitioned into screenwriting. I'm trying to think. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting transition. Yeah. So, um, you started obviously writing live action and now you predominantly work with animated content. Does that give you more of an ability to kind of shape without worrying about stepping on the director's toes than you would with live action? I don't know. I, I will say that um, I feel, you know, maybe I think Pixar could probably speak to this, like the development department and maybe directors could speak to this more, but um, you know, Pixar doesn't look for animation writers or cartoon writers. Mm-hmm. They actually look for dramatic writers. Um, and, uh, they look for a lot of playwrights as well. Like Kemp Powers is a playwright. Right. Um, and, uh, some of the other screenwriters that are working there currently are playwrights and some are dramatic, uh, film writers. And so all of my stuff was kind of weird, odd dramas. And, um, 
they had, I would say, two things about my work that maybe got the attention of Pixar is that um, one, my first script that uh, I wrote, well, the first script that got the attention of Pixar was an adaptation of a book called The Minotaur Takes a Cigarette Break. And it was about the Minotaur um, as a short order grill cook in a steakhouse <laughs> in Wichita, Kansas. And he's kind of a shell of the monster he used to be thousands of years before. And, you know, he's kind of treated like, um, like the min- like, like a minority, essentially. He's treated mm-hmm. like the bus boy or, or, um, the dishwasher. And, um, what I found is that book was really a wonderful comment on class, but yeah. structured around in this kind of alt, alt fantasy world. And I loved that. And so I was able to kind of, I rewrote the, um, I rewrote the the story of the screenplay differently than the book, but I took a lot of the characters, a lot of the situations. And that was odd enough, but also moving enough that I think it got the attention of Pixar. And because Pixar can make anything funny, Mm -hmm. they can make anything look incredible. They, the artists there are, are fantastic. And what they're looking for in a screenwriter as a partner is somebody who can within structure um, build an emotional movie, a dramatic and emotional movie, not necessarily a funny movie. They, we can do funny too, but emotional. And, um, and so that's what I think they, they looked for in my work. Um, and so with, when I was working with Pete, um, you know, Pete came to me and said, um, I have an idea of a place beyond space and time where souls are given their personality. And it comes from this, this idea that, you know, when my son was born, he seemed to come out with his personality. Mm. And so my job at Pixar is to take that idea and to put a structure to it and to put it inside of a frame to start having the filmmaker think about it in terms of a three-act structure, sometimes a four-act structure, whatever, but just in terms of what a movie could be. And the second thing that I feel like is my job at Pixar is I need I, I need with the director to create characters that are creating our plot. So it's not that the plot is always happening on our characters. Our through our characters' decisions, they are um, through their bad decisions and good decisions are making are propelling the story forward. And so in that regard, you have to really really drill down into the specifics of uh, of those characters, of what they desire, what they want, what they fear. Um, what they love, what they think they want, and what they ultimately get by the end of the movie. Um, and that takes, you know, all of that. I try to get some kind of foundation early on, but at the end of the day, it all takes years, yeah, years to get done. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, 
punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today, such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday. So uh, working with someone like Pete, um, I, I know obviously he had the director credit as well. Um, do you get to stay involved in continuing to shape once things really kind of get into the uh, the the more firm filmmaking process once the animation actually starts, once you're working with the voice actors? Do you get to continue staying and shaping at that point? Uh, yeah, different – on Soul I did um... – on some, on others, uh, I'm needed elsewhere, and so I until I wrap and go work with other filmmakers. But with Soul, um, I stayed and helped a lot with um, record, dialogue recording. Um, but what also happens is that uh, once the script is written, the script is chopped up and then um, given to different story artists to storyboard. Hmm. And so the writer is very involved in that process because. Um, that's when the real collaboration starts to happen. And that's when the real magic of Pixar also starts to, starts to really begin at that point, because what, a, what I can write, I need a story artist to figure out how to um, make emotional an action. Because the last thing you want to look at is just two animated characters talking to each other at right. the dinner table, right? You need action. You need, you need, you need movement. I and mean, animation is movement. And so um, I am reliant on the story artist to tell me, hey, look, I wrote, you know, I wrote this chunk of dialogue. I'd love to cut it in half. Is there anything you can do in the movement of this character, whether it's a body language or an eye movement, to show what I've wrote, to show what I've written? And um, some of the best collaborations come out of that. Also, they'll tell you, you know what, I think there's a whole better way of doing this sequence. And let me pitch it to you. And you have to be open to do that. Mm -hmm. You can't be a writer at Pixar and silo yourself off. I mean, you, you, you do need your time to go get your pages in order and to think and to dream and to, and to figure out and to be inspired. But at the end of the day, somebody's going to come knocking on your door and say like, we need those pages and we have some notes. That's, that's what Pixar is. Pixar is like, we've, we've looked at these pages and we have some notes and you have to be ready to it and you have to be open to it. And you have to kind of roll with those, it's not punches necessarily. It's at some point you become um, less precious about your work, you know, because yeah. you realize that this is such a team effort and that you're all going toward the same destination. You cannot be precious about anything um, at Pixar. Um, you, you're and, and also at the end of the day, you're there, you're there to um, execute the director's vision. And, the thing that the, the maybe the number one job at, for a writer at Pixar is to is to reinforce and help that director find what their gut is about the movie, because that director then for four plus years after that has to communicate that gut to so many different department heads, so many different artists that are working on this movie. Um, and so that's the, some of those early conversations that Kemp and I and Pete had were about really solidifying what Pete wanted to say 
And once Pete started to feel real good about that, then I feel like um, the film really got rolling as soon as when other people came on. One of the things I was interested in is from what I've heard, um, the original version of the film that you guys had in mind primarily took place in this kind of beyond world. And obviously the, mm-hmm. the final film um, features quite a bit more earthbound action. So uh, tell me a little bit about the, mm-hmm. the shift in development there. What we, what we needed Joe to do is that we needed Joe to understand the value of his life. And, and we needed him to understand that the, that the value of his life came not, necessar- not necessarily from his artistic ambitions, but from his life as a whole. Right. And so we thought about different ways of, in the youth seminar, how Joe could look back on his life. We had, and you see remnants of it too, like there's the Hall of Joe, for instance. There was always a version of like the Hall of Joe, and sometimes there was a version where Joe would actually go into holograms and, and watch his life. And as if he were in some kind of virtual reality and he would be able to kind of show 22 forward and back or backwards, all of these wonderful moments that he found um, were inspiring to him. Right. Mm-hmm. And we always felt that that was always added a level of removal from it because what we also in this movie, it's not just that Joe needs to understand the value of life, but 22 does too. Right. And 22 has lived, um, the life of as a soul in this um, conceptual world, right? Like they go to the hall of everything and 22, you know, can't even experience a pizza because the soul doesn't have taste buds, right? That's an <laughs> earthbound thing. That's a sensory thing. So the body gives sense to the soul to experience life. And so what I, also, what I finally said at one point, and I said, I feel like the only way our two characters are going to come to understand the value of life is by going and actually living it, like by feeling the air, by tasting pizza, by um, having communication, by having experiences between other people. And um, that's where we kind of came. That's where we kind of landed on the idea that Joe changes by watching 22 live his life, not changing his life. 22 doesn't change his life when they go down on earth. 22 just lives it. And Joe and watching it, begins to understand where his where the real value is and it's in that and that's where that that scene at the near the end comes from where Joe takes out all those totems from his life that that 22 has collected like mm-hmm. a little kid right <laughs> and he places them on the piano and he sets them to music and what he first begins to see in his head is 22's memories of his life but then those bleed into other memories of his own life when he was with his dad you know walking on the beach little things like that and so that's when, when we came up with that concept that our characters need to go to Earth. I feel like it really opened up um, and really sharpened to what our characters needed to learn. Obviously, 22 is a really fascinating character. One of my favorite parts of the film was the, the many cameos of historical figures who mentored 22. Yeah. How did you choose the people who were going to be featured in those recurring gags? Oh, I don't, I don't know how I ended up with them. I mean, we always had the idea that 22 um, had had um, so many mentors. And we had, I think we had different, I'm trying to remember the, all the historical figures that we had thought about. I think it was just, where could we get the best kind of gag out of it? Yeah. We'd get the best like one-liners out of it, right? Like the world doesn't revolve around 222, obviously, you know, 
Was that Copernicus? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Copernicus was there. Abraham Lincoln yeah. with uh, the penny. Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, the penny. I mean, that was like, uh, you know, a, a lot of that was just us kind of sitting in a room thinking about what could be the funniest one-liner. Because granted, we don't have a whole lot of time. Yeah. Like, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time flashing back with 22 and all of the mentors that she had. We just wanted to give, like, quick little indications. And also, um, what we wanted to do was set up the end and so throughout the movie you see all of these mentors that she's had that end up kind of treating her um they're kind of treating her badly in a way or else mm-hmm. she's receiving it in a bad way and that then becomes her burden as she becomes a lost as 22 becomes a lost soul and so um I think it was just, yeah, I mean, just to answer your original question, I think it was just kind of sitting down. And that's the wonderful thing about Pixar is that you can get a bunch of really funny, smart people in the room and go like, we have this conceit. Let's write about like, let's write 50 different funny things on the board and we'll go with the best. And so that's that's what we did there. I think Kent came up with a lot of them, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, I mean, he wrote about Muhammad Ali earlier this year. So, I mean, it makes sense that he's got him featured. Um, Another thing that interested me about your world was you had these these kind of guardians of the afterlife characters you had jerry and you had terry and they're all kind of a collective consciousness but also not uh tell me a little bit about the creation of those creatures and why you picked those names well jerry just came out of uh i, I just wanted the most generic name <laughs> um available and and so i just came up with jerry Kemp came up because we needed Terry to be different. Kemp came up with Terry just to give her a, or give that counselor a slight difference. Right. Um, but we, you know, we, we, de- we didn't want like a hard, um, like strict teacher like presence in this uh, youth seminar world. Mm-hmm. We thought that if we're going to have a bunch of souls running around, bumping into each other, pushing each other, laughing, um, that they're really essentially just a bunch of kindergartners and that um, this is just an open free space for them to find. And that the last thing you wanted was any kind of heavy hand in that. So we really thought like these counselors are just kindergartner teachers that just heard cats all day. And maybe sometimes you could see them get a little frustrated, but mostly it's just like, oh, well, you know, and, um, and then particularly when we cast like all the voices of those counselors, they just added such a sense of personality to them like um Richard Iowata, you know, it's just so great. And so uh we, and then with in, in that, I think it was um one of our story artists uh, artists came up with the idea of what if instead of these kind of more ethereal or three D creatures, what if they were they were line drawings? What if mm-hmm. like the line like the universe created them in a all kind of in a um uh, an anthropomorphic way, but not so much, you know. And I, and when Pete saw that, he said yes immediately. That's what we got to do. There's like a, I think if you saw one of the inside Pixar um, documentaries on Disney Plus, there's one about the artist that came up with the drawing or, or or the design for the counselors, and it's really fascinating. She created she created out of wire. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. So I, I guess the thing that really spoke to me uh, about this was, you know, if if Toy Story 3 was about kind of the millennial fear of going off to college, this really tapped in, at least for me, to kind of the 
the post grad um, inui, the uh, the fear that mm-hmm. nothing we really do matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, was that intentional, kind of trying to target that same audience who had just gotten a little bit older and was now topping it, tapping into a whole new set of fears with like the timing of this film? No, I wouldn't say it was intentional. I think it was just maybe where Pete's head was at and my, where my head and Kemp's head was at and all the other artists. I mean, but I think where, where we really began this movie is at the end of the day, when we look back upon our life, um, what are the things that we are going to remember about it? What are the things? And, and I think we all came to the idea that we're not going to remember or we're not going to hold a lot of value in the idea that you know, Pete has an Oscar or mm-hmm. that soul is a financial success. I think what we're, what we're going to hold in our hearts are those moments where um, we were emotional and we were um, experiencing it with someone else or even by ourselves to a certain regard. Mm-hmm. And so when that concept came to us, it came around the time, you know, it came also around the time when my dad was passing away and he was in his last months and I would write on soul and then I would get on the plane and I would fly to Texas to go be with my dad. And I would think about this a lot as I would watch him, you know, and I would think about like what's valuable to him mm-hmm. and what's valuable to me. And to be honest, sitting there with my dad and holding his hand as he passed on, is a moment I would never trade ever. It mm-hmm. was emotional and heartfelt and beautiful for me. And all of the success, like artistic success or financial success I have in my life pales in, in comparison to those moments. And if I take that moment and I think about what, what are the other points in my life where I felt similar things, there's a lot of them. And I think Joe feels that way too. I think Joe, that when he starts to play um, the moments of his life on his piano, that's what he's starting to realize as well. That life is built from, that if there's any sort of meaning in life, and we, we, we very purposely do not, uh, did not want to say what the meaning of life is. Yeah. And maybe if there's any meaning in life, it's the actual living of life. That in the living of life which is, is its own meaning. And that a life is comprised of all of these moments, all of these like wonderful, heartfelt moments, including all of the failures as well. And so the, I, I think that's where um, Pete and I were at when we first started to talk about this movie. And then when Kemp joined, when we partnered with Kemp, um, Kemp also brought, we're all similar age yeah. as well. And so we're all, we, all of us were, were kind of thinking about this, thinking about these concepts as well. So it was an easy, uh, and, and that kind of became also one of the strong, really guiding lights for what we wanted to say in this movie. Well, I mean, it, it hit hard. Uh, and I think it's probably going to, that thought is going to hit hard for all ages. Uh, we're about out of time, so last couple things I want to ask. Yeah. I'm just curious. I saw you had a special thanks in the Blair Witch Project. Uh, what's that about? Okay, so I so I was a journalist at Filmmaker Magazine. This is a story. I love this story. The journalist <laughs> at Filmmaker Magazine, and I, I was um, good friends with Mike Manello, who ran for a while the Florida Film Festival. I would go down there, and I would go to his film festival, and we became friends. He one day um, brought... He, we were at Sundance together and he took me aside and he, and we had lunch and he said, Mike, I'm going to quit the Florida Film Festival and I'm going to go make a movie with a bunch of guys. And I go, I go, really, I go, do, you, do you really have to quit your job? I mean, like, 
independent film is littered with stories um, of you know people who have quit their day jobs in order to make a film that got no that went nowhere. Right. And he goes, no, no, like I really believe it. Like I think these guys have a great idea. I I can't wait to go do it, and um, I'm going to send you the movie. And I go, okay, all right, good. And so uh, months pass, and sure enough, he sends me the movie. And what also um, my girlfriend, now wife at the time, Maya Cherry, she used to work at Artistic License. And so our little New York apartment was kind of like the indie film graveyard. Like people (laughs) would send me their indie movies and my wife um, their indie movies for to be considered for distribution. And so we just had literal milk crates filled with VHS tapes. (laughs) And um, we would try to watch them and like some were okay, but some were just, most were just awful. And so when this tape shows up, I have no idea what's in this tape. I have no idea what Mike and those hacks and guys have done. I have no idea. And this is well, this is before Sundance. This is month, just months before Sundance, in fact. Right. And so um, he calls, he goes like, have you watched it? I go, no, I'm sorry. Have you watched it? No. And so finally, like one night, midnight, I said like, look, my, Mike, I, I got to watch Mike's movie and let's just watch, let's watch it and see. And we stayed up and we watched it and it scared the shit out of me. And I didn't sleep for days because I had no (laughs) idea what the hell this was. It was kind of one of those beautiful moments before any of the hype from Blair Witch, before any, before even the website, before any of that internet marketing that they, that they kind of helped pioneer. It even hit. Like we thought, I thought, was this a documentary? Did he find this? What was this? And, um, it blew me away to realize that these were that, that it was a fiction movie. I talked with Mike. We it, we did a big story in Filmmaker uh, about it, and I was there um, at Sundance when it played at the Egyptian. And the moment it played is the moment you felt like this electricity. Something had happened, and so um, they threw a nice thanks in there. Just I think just because I was just so overwhelmed at um, how different and um, how unique their their movie was, um, so that's why they I got a why they threw, I got a special thanks. That's very cool. I got a special thanks for being like, "What the fuck is this? That's what, <laughs> what, what have you done? What happened to these children?" <laughs> yeah, they they changed their IMDb credits to "Missing Presumed Dead" at the time, didn't they? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's so funny. But that was the that was the great. Um, that was a great idea of Artisan was that, well, you know what? We're not going to tell people whether it's real or not. That's that fantastic. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. Do you, do you know what you're going to be working on next? Uh, I do. I have another Pixar project. I'm actually starting uh, next week. I can't really talk much about of course. it. But, um, it's, uh, you know, the, the, the work never stops there. So you will see it in 2028. Oh, wow. I don't know. <laughs> You'll see it like several years ago. No, I'm just kidding. It takes so long <laughs> The next thing that I did work on after Soul is I did co-write Luca with Jesse Andrews, which is directed by Enrico Casarosa. So you'll see that summer uh, next June. God willing with with COVID. Yeah, I know. (laughs) All right. Well, well, thank you so much for taking the time. This is uh, it's a wonderful script. And uh, I hope to see you in the screenplay Oscar race this year. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for talking to me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. All right. You have a great day. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to Will Mavity's interview with the co-screenwriter for the film Soul, Mike Jones, here on the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. 
If you are feeling generous, head on over to Apple Podcasts, leave us a review and rate us five stars and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening as always, and we shall see you all next time. You've watched them in unforgettable adventures, love affairs, and tragedies. Now it's time to hear their own remarkable stories. From the makers of Death of a Rockstar and Death of a Sports Star, this is Death of a Film Star. Starring Heath Ledger, Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman, Robin Williams, Carrie Fisher, and Bruce Lee. Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. You've seen them tell stories. Now it's time to tell theirs.